Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway. I'm Andrew Walworth. What do women over 50 want when it comes to politics? And how is this key demographic going to affect the outcome of the 2022 midterms? That is the topic that Real Clear Politics addressed in a recent panel discussion that included our own Carl Cannon, as well as three women involved in a recent AARP research project that featured polling, focus groups, and analysis. On today's podcast, we invite you to listen in on a discussion of the key insights drawn from that research. A.B. Stoddard, who moderated the panel, kicks us off. Welcome to Real Clear Politics. I'm A.B. Stoddard. Women over 50 make up a large and growing share of registered voters in America, and they will undoubtedly play a key role in the 2022 midterms. Today, we're going to look at a new survey of women over the age of 50, as well as examine the issues that matter most to them, all with an eye toward what may happen at the voting booth this November. The survey is part of an ongoing research project by AARP, and we'll hear from key people involved in that study in a moment. But first, I want to bring in Carl Cannon, Real Clear Politics Washington Bureau Chief. Carl, so much has been written and said about the importance of the woman's vote, and we're going to focus on women over 50 in today's discussion. But first, what do we know about the so-called women's vote today? Is there still a gender gap when it comes to electoral politics? Well, the phrase gender gap, as far as I know, first appeared in the Washington Post in 1981. And in the year following that, Eleanor Smeal, the feminist leader, popularized it. And the idea was that it was going to favor Democrats because Democrats were speaking to women. And a movement gathered steam right here in Washington um, to pressure the Democratic nominee, whoever that person turned out to be, to put a woman on the ticket in 1984. The nominee turned out to be Walter Mondale. And the woman who really spearheaded the effort and the one tasked with going to Mondale personally was Patricia Schroeder, a congresswoman from Colorado. I knew her well and I talked to her about this. I interviewed her and I was actually standing beside her on the floor, the convention center at the Moscone Center in San Francisco um, when Mondale brought out Geraldine Ferraro. And she was less accomplished than Pat Schroeder. I think Pat paid a price for being the point person on that. She was not chosen herself. But Democrats hoped that this historic selection would bring them victory in November and that women would flock to the polls. And women did flock to the polls in 1984, but they voted for Ronald Reagan. There was a gender gap, but it was a reverse gender gap. And what happened was that women voters really liked Reagan and men voters loved him. And so he won both cohorts, won men by a greater degree. But by 1996, this gender gap started being a more or less permanent feature of, and, and it did favor Democrats. And sometimes it'd be two, three points, sometimes it would be larger. And, but finally in 2020 AB, Joe Biden got about the same percentage of female votes that Reagan did male votes all those years earlier. So the gender gap is here in a way Democrats predicted a long time ago I don't know if it's permanent, but if Republicans can't do better with women than they did in 2020, they're going to have trouble. Why do you think it widened in recent years? Uh, I'm tempted to turn that question back to you um, because I think the answer is a two-syllable answer. A name that's familiar to us uh, sounds like Ronald Frump. In 2021, the selection in Virginia, uh, Glenn Youngkin was successful in bringing women back into the fold for the Republicans. Women traditionally have viewed economic issues differently than men. Do they still? Are they more sensitive to inflation, for example, or is that uh, diminished, this difference over time? 
Well, we, we used to talk about these kitchen table issues. They're local issues, local to a family. The, the, are the public schools good? Is the neighborhood safe? Uh, what's, what's inflation doing? And, and when I talk about that, I'm talking, you know, household goods, family products, th things people need to buy, gasoline, food. And the idea was that women voters were more attuned to these issues because they were running the family. Now, with all women entering the workforce, a majority of new doctors and lawyers are female. So th that seems to diminish somewhat, but maybe not, because I mentioned Virginia. Glenn Youngkin carried the day on these kitchen table issues. And it was ironic because Terry McAuliffe, who I knew well and covered when he was working for Bill Clinton in 1996, and Bill Clinton's the first Democrat who really exploits the gender gap in a way that Democrats had long envisioned. Um, Terry McAuliffe knew this and he talked about it, but he kind of forgot it in uh, 2021. And he played the Democrats sort of national playbook. And Youngkin, who was actually new to politics, but he focused on these kitchen table issues, and they work for him. So uh, maybe there's maybe that still is a factor for women voters of any age, but particularly women over 50. So these women, Carl, over 50, uh, are the most committed voting bloc, but it's a large and diverse cohort. So what do you think unites them politically? Talking about the women's vote is, I mean, because it's more than half the vote, and women register more than men, they vote more than men, and women over 50 are the most committed cohort. It's like talking about the Catholic vote, which we talked about. You're talking about America. And there's two cohorts there, and uh, your panelists um, are experts on this, but there's the 50 to 64 and then the over 64. And the over 64 voters, there's a couple of issues that really play with them, and one of them is inflation. And the reason is they're on fixed income, a lot of people. And they, they also care about the stock market, not because they're you know, hedge fund people, but because there are retirements in the stock market and they don't have a chance to accumulate new wealth. And so what they're looking at is an economy that, that still works for them. And when it doesn't, uh, you, you think the, incumbent, the incumbents are gonna pay a price. So polls are now showing, Carl, that Republicans are doing better with black and Hispanic voters in 2022, and they're doing better with women as well. And according to Gallup, Biden's approval rating among women has gone from 62% at the beginning of his presidency to 46% now. This 16-point drop is greater than the 11-point drop he has suffered with men. Are Democrats in trouble with women going into this November's election? Well, maybe, but part of that is a statistical anomaly because he just had many more voters among women to lose. Uh, there weren't that many men, <laughs> men who voted for him. But yeah, this is not, if you're a Democrat, it's not, it's not a good number. The Democrats, the, the, when, the, when you're a Democrat and you put together your national coalition, you like to have a, a, a cushion there with women. You don't have, you don't want to be hemorrhaging support the way he is. We get these binary choices and if you're running against a, uh, a candidate who doesn't speak to women's issues and doesn't act like he understands really what to do about inflation, who knows? Thank you, Carl. I look forward to having you rejoin us later in the program. We turn now to three women involved in this AARP study. Nancy Lamond is AARP's Chief Advocacy and Engagement Officer and leads the organization's government affairs and legislative campaigns. Christine Matthews is a Republican pollster and president of Bellwether Research. In every election cycle since 2014, she has convened a panel of women voters to study their decision-making process. And Margie O'Mero is a principal at the Democratic polling firm GBAO with more than 20 years of experience, providing strategic advice using qualitative and quantitative research. 
So, um, ladies, there's uh, so much to discuss here, but I, I want to start with Nancy. This is the most committed block of voters and could potentially swing this election. Nancy, what role will women have uh, in this election? Women over the age of 50, why should candidates be paying particular attention to this group of voters? Well, women over the age of 50 are the most reliable voters. And we think in uh, this election cycle, they are going to be the deciders. There are 63 million women over the age of 50. Using a sports metaphor, they punch above their weight. Uh, they represent 25% of the population, 27% of registered voters. And in 2020, they were 30% of the ballots. And we think in 2022, that number will be even higher. They're also uh, the largest group of swing voters. They're evenly divided by party. Um, unlike men over the age of 50 who are typically identified as Republican. And research has found recently that they represent around a third of all uh, ticket splitters uh, when they go to the polls. Uh, one thing we know from uh, the research we did that uh, we'll be talking about today is that they haven't made up their minds yet, which makes them even more important. And that's the reason why uh, candidates, Republicans, Democrats, independents need to pay attention to these women as they uh, work over the summer and the fall. So, Christine, they have not made up their minds. What is on their minds? What is the number one driving most important issue to these women over 50? Right. So our survey was done in late spring. And even then, cost of living issues, rising cost of food were, it just dominated their concerns. Um, so they're very much, you know, economic voters, cost of living, prices of food. Um, Democratic women also expressed some concern about voting rights and climate change, but Republican and independent women over 50 were just through the roof in terms of, of rising prices and, and um, the economy. And Margie, um, I know this survey compared men and women voters over the age of 50. Do women view the economy differently than men? I mean, they do, for sure. There are some women who view the economy differently than men. They talk about shopping and buying things and also not just the day-to-day -day cost of goods, but also what, what they think about their children, what's going to be next for their children or grandchildren. But I do want to actually note that there are other things where you saw a similarly large difference between women and men, and that's feeling pained about depression or, you know, caregiving or stress over family or worries about COVID. Like there was just a variety of different places beyond the economy where you saw women over 50 feel just something that they had been worried about for the past two years. So there's the economy, but there's also the impact of what fluctuations in the economy may be and how that affects women personally. But I do want to also note, and this is, I think, important to remember that this is not a monolithic group, right? Whether it's men or women. So Things like the economy and inflation, and inflation, while people worry about it, it doesn't mean that everybody's experiencing it in the same way. And Christine, what are your thoughts on how they view it differently than men? Yeah, I mean, so um, women 
are very, very sensitive to their income, keeping up with the rising costs of food and, and other goods, much more so than men in, the, in, in our survey. Um, so they were very much more personally concerned about rising prices. And half of all women 50 and older are unmarried. Unmarried women over the age of 50 were particularly concerned about rising prices. We've asked a question, AARP has asked a question, um, a time series about whether or not the economy is working well for you or not working well for you. So a few years ago in the AARP polling, a majority of women said, the economy is working well for me. And now a majority of women, particularly women who are still really in the workplace, 50 to 64, say the economy is not working well for me. And those numbers were uh, quite significantly different from a few years ago. And inflation is the most important issue to them. Is there anything else that comes near it? That um, The other thing that women are more concerned about than men is being able to save for uh, retirement. One um, intersection that I really noticed that was interesting is non-college uh, women were very concerned about having their income keep up with the price of food. I mean, just basically day-to-day living. Whereas college-educated women over 50 said that they were most concerned about being able to save for retirement. So, you know, there's an interplay between age, party, education level um, that's at work here as well. And Margie, of course, it's so surprising that 80% um, of the women um, who responded to the polls said they don't, they're undecided about which party they'll be voting for uh, in November. And that seems very high since 1980. Of course, they voted more than men. Um, but they also seem very frustrated. Um, what is your take on why they're so undecided? Well, I think there's a couple things happening. One is, you know, I think there are a lot of women who say, well, I may have a preference, but I'm just going to wait. I want to know a little bit more about the candidates. I want to do some research. I'm not going to make a knee-jerk decision when, in some places, the primaries had not happened when we, you know, done these, uh, done the survey. So, you know, people may be just waiting to hear a little bit more, um, which is, you know, is slightly different than saying, I'm not sure if I'm going to vote or I'm not sure how, what my political party is. I mean, those are all different measures of something similar. But to be sure, um, women in particular, and this is true in lots of focus groups that we do and surveys, feel that things are not going well in our political system. And th- those things are, you know, are related. People feel that, um, women feel that the, um, direction of the country is not, you know, it's not moving in the right direction. Politicians are not getting things done. You know, we haven't really, I've been doing this a long time. I don't usually hear sort of like, way to go, Washington, you know, in focus groups. I mean, generally people are down on Washington, but it is becoming increasingly so. Like, it's just hard to get, sometimes we ask people what's going well. We'll ask in a focus group, you know, what's a word or phrase about what's going well in the country? And People just sort of throw up their hands and say, I'm not, you know, I don't know what to tell you, you know, how to answer that. I've heard people answer sports or television is going well because, you know, they can't, that's, that thinking about Washington is really not, you know, it doesn't make it to the top of that list. I just want to add a little something Uh here. Um, There's this thought or this myth that uh, older uh, voters are, you know, just Republican. And again, because they're not monolithic, Older men tend to be Republican, and in our survey, we found that um, a third of Republican men, 50 and older, had decided how they were going to vote already. That is so much higher than um, our women. For example, women 50 to 64, 15% had decided, whereas twice as many men 50 to 64 had decided. So 
I guess when we're thinking about older voters, it might be true that older men tend to pick their their candidate early and align with their partisan views and tend to be Republican. But women, they're both, as Nancy mentioned, you know, sort of very split between Democrats and Republican. And the vast majority are going to be making their final decision in the last month um, to few weeks. Well, Nancy, um, given that from the findings, we know how frustrated and anxious they are, um, and their husbands might have made up their mind on a partisan um, choice. But um, are these committed voters potentially going to fall out of line and get so frustrated that they don't turn out? Or you think they're going to continue to vote in the numbers that we've seen them participate in in the past? Well, based on what we see now, we think they are going to turn out. They are frustrated, but... Um, as you know, AARP is a nonpartisan organization. We do work in every state to right now educate our members on how to vote, where to vote, when to vote, uh, with all the changes in the rules. And all of the feedback we've had is that there's tremendous in interest, um, particularly among women, in uh, in this election. And uh, to follow up on, on what both Margie and Chris said, uh, and real interest in understanding where the candidates are on issues that, that affect them. So we think we think there'll still be a good turnout. So Christine, as Margie said, it's really hard to be, um, to give Washington a, a passing grade. One of the things that you found was that these women are, one of their frustrations and their disappointments is with their leaders in Washington. Um, where They give them, most of them a failing grade on most political issues. How is that going to factor, do you think, um, on, on in, into November on turnout, on either party, uh, across the board? Yeah. I mean, what's really great about this project is we did the survey where we found that, you know, if they were in school, they would be flunking out, basically, on pretty much any of the major issues, whether it's um, dealing with rising prices, dealing with immigration, dealing with wage gap between rich and poor, crime, all sorts of things. They're just failing, failing grades. So I think, and, and we heard that, of course, in the focus groups, there's this, like, feeling that, like, none of them are, are listening to the things that matter to them. So I honestly, I feel like they think it's like um, Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, and they're doing whatever they're doing in Washington, but they're not focusing on things that matter to them. And they're not hearing them. That was a really big thing that came through in our focus group. So I think in that situation, um, you're going to wait. You're going to to figure out, like, are they eventually going to listen to me? Are they eventually going to get their acts together on something? So I'm going to reserve judgment. I'm going to vote because that's part of my civic duty. These voters really feel that. But nobody's doing a very good job. So we're just going to have to wait and see. And Margie, I thought it was so fascinating that by a two-to-one margin, the voters um, in your study are, are, prefer a politician that will compromise and work across the aisle, only 30%. So they want someone who consistently fights for their values but doesn't find a solution. What are they looking for at this point? They're disappointed in their record so far, but but what are they hoping Washington will do? Yeah, I mean, you know, there aren't many people who say we need more fighting in Washington, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they they want to see things get done. And often we hear people in focus groups, women in particular, use the language of education and, and parent parenting to describe this. Like if I, you know, I teach second grade, I wouldn't allow this kind of behavior in my second grade class, or you know, this is how my children act. So they use this kind of language of like, how is this tolerated? 
separated. So people talk about their, you know, scoring political points or they, maybe they don't feel the sense of urgency that I feel. Cause if they felt a sense of urgency, something, maybe they would be acting in a different way. So, so we hear that a lot because they feel, and again, some, you know, there are things that happen in Washington that have an impact. So people don't necessarily always feel that. So they want to see more happen. And this has been obviously been true for a while. But of course, they see a lot of obstruction in Washington and feel that they want people to come together at, with a shared purpose and shared goal. And Nancy, what, what surprised you? You've been at this a long time watching this kind of research as the political winds change. What surprised you, if anything, from the focus group finding? Well, as you say, I've, I've seen a lot of them over the years, and, and I have to say that um, these were deeply affecting for me and, and really heartbreaking at, at times. You know, you always hear the statistics, right track, wrong track, but when you hear women talk about how they have despair, disgust, they're so frustrated, worn down, uh, it, it really paints a picture that you want to be sure to convey to those who are who are running for office. They they're taking care of themselves. They're taking care of loved ones. They're trying to make ends meet. Um, they don't have a lot of resources. And what really struck me was um, how many of them said that they feel invisible. They don't think they're seen, whether it's in their community, at work, or by elected officials. And so uh, we, we were struck at the end of one of them, a woman talked about her caregiving years, which were um, many. She took care of her mother, she took care of her father, and now she was took care of her um, father-in-law, was now taking care of her mother-in-law. And, uh, and we asked kind of what, what would you like to tell elected officials? She said, I just want them to come to my house and spend a day with me and see what I do all day and help me give my 92 year old mother-in-law a bath. Um, go beyond the sitting in the diner and having a five minute conversation with people about what their real world, uh, life is like, but come and see it. And that, that really struck me. And I hope it strikes others who look at our focus groups and, and read the summaries. And, and what, what struck you the most? It was the same. I mean, was the, the, the stories that people told, and I, I moderate a lot of focus groups, and maybe I've moderated a thousand, or I don't know, I've lost count. But we had, you know, multiple people sort of tear up talking about how their life was going. You know, we had one woman say, this was not how my life was supposed to turn out. Um, we had, you know, another woman say, I feel guilty listening to other people talk about what's happening for them because things are okay for me. And then everybody chimed in and said, no, you shouldn't feel guilty. And there was another woman who said, you know, when my husband died at the beginning of COVID, nobody touched, I didn't, nobody's like giving me a hug. And then everybody in the room said, you know, we all said like, we would give you a hug if we were in person. And like, it still upsets me. So it was a lot to hear them. And that invisible piece, women felt, and we did six focus groups. So it included Republican women, Democrat women, an undecided group, uh, women, a group of black women, Latina women, and Asian women. And all of them said that they felt invisible and unheard. There wasn't one group that seemed to feel it more or less or said, no, I feel like my voice is heard. They all felt that. And they also didn't really seem to feel visible as like a group or a voting block either. So there was just, you know, a lot, I think, that elected officials could learn about how to speak to these women and really understand their struggle in daily life. And I want to give you another chance. You you actually raised this first about how, how invisible and unseen they felt. What struck you the most? Yeah, I... We didn't prompt any of that. And I am a woman over 50, so I get 
feeling invisible. I do. And it was just so visceral, though. They felt like all the things that they are doing from driving constantly to caring for others to like taking an extra extra shift to earn the extra $20 when they would rather be spending it with their granddaughter are not seen by these people and it, and in another event we did you know staffers for elected officials asked like what what can our bosses do and honestly at a town hall if if an elected official said how many of you are caregivers raise your hand they would be seen. And that's and we just don't talk about that. I mean, they, they talk about policy and this tax credit or that credit, but like acknowledge that their load is really heavy. And I think that's one thing. One night in particular, it just had us all tearing up. But like if there, there's a reason these women haven't decided who they're going to vote for, because they have heavy loads and they are just trying to make it day by day in many cases. And um, it's a lot. But what was what really struck me was that at the end of this, um, even those who had lost somebody and who were barely making ends meet were talking about trying to find joy, whether it is a meditation practice or going to their garden, turning off cable news, getting on the riding lawnmower for a, a woman who lived in Iowa and like spending a couple hours like mowing the grass, you know, and and they they refused to be down. I mean, they were down about the country, but they refused to be down about their lives. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And, and these women were carrying, like I said, some very, very heavy loads. Amazing. Um, one interesting question that you asked in the focus groups, which I absolutely love because I believe that women are better team leaders, team members, better listeners, better problem solvers, and they read to the end of the email, unlike men, <laughs> was um, to imagine a woman-run world. How did the women over 50 think that that would change things? They, they were very clear. <laughs> It'd be a lot less fighting. We'd get things done. It would be, you know, we'd all work together. Like, they had a very consistent response in every group. They're like, it would be a million times better. And we also asked too about, you know, what it, would it mean? Like, you can think of anything. It could also be television and pop culture. Like, there were a variety of ways people thought, like, if we were in charge, things, we'd be represented and seen and things would be better and, you know, we, things things would work well. I mean, you had one woman talk about, you know, going back to the office after the pandemic and she was older than a lot of her colleagues and felt like she had to go out and buy spandex leggings in order to fit in with her colleagues, you know. <laughs> so, you know, just feeling like pop culture and fashion and politics and all of it was, you know, designed for somebody else. And so that really came through loud and clear. And I actually, you know, feel quite differently about this. Like, I believe, you know, my personal view, like, women don't need to be better to have parity. Like, we deserve parity just because. And we could be just as bad as, you know, like, there's a famous Nora Ephron quote, like, oh, I could have made that film just as badly as him. Right. So, like, right. so I believe that. But, you know, at the same time, you know, it's also interesting and important to see that lots of women disagree with me on that and feel like we things would be a lot better if women were in charge um, and certainly design a world that affects them and looks like them. So, Christine, I, I was struck by you talking about whether a politician, you know, would the act of going around and asking about the load, about if, or how many caregivers are here. What would, advice would you give having done this research and heard all these women um, to, a, to a politician running or a candidate running for office about, about how to get the attention of these women and earn their approval? Is it, is it policy positions? Is it 
tone and style, what would you recommend uh, they do uh, so that these women engage with, with, those, with that particular you know, Democrat or Republican? I still really believe that seeing them and hearing them is the most important thing because they really feel estranged. They feel invisible, and then they feel that whatever it is the politicians are doing, it's not about them. So acknowledging that um, they're having to pay a whole lot more, that they are not only, you know, working to try and save, you know, for retirement, but they're also caregivers. And talk about some of the things that, you know, these women are actually dealing with in their lives. And I think that's really, really important. And also, I think, you know, sort of tone it down on the um, tribal rhetoric, you know, just talk about ways. And and we found this true. Like, basically, if you're watching cable news, you're hearing about all the fights that we all have. But there are cases where, um, in fact, I just saw something, there's a, a lot of uh, bipartisan agreement on um, something about saving, you know, endangered species in the United States or something. And like that even surprised me because I was like, where's the news about this? And in, in other cases, you know, they're coming together on, on other key, you know, uh, policies. And I think the news is not getting out there. And that would be really beneficial if, 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 you could focus on, you know, you're only hearing about all the times we're fighting, but we're actually getting some things done. Let me give you some examples. Okay, so Christine, you, we know that Biden is down 16 points in however many months, 18 months in his presidency. Republicans now are performing 13 points better with Democrats than they than the last midterm when they were defeated in 2018. Why do you think this has happened? Well, um, you know, I I think right now it's not a choice. It's a referendum on, on President Biden. A lot of things have gone very badly, starting with Afghanistan and the pullout from Afghanistan that really sort of uh, his approval rating. And then, of course, COVID, you know, keeps seeming to come back and come back. And now just, you know, 40-year high inflation. You know, if, if people are paying $450 more per month on, you know, the things they bring into their home or the gas that they put into their car, like that's a major big deal, right? And so um, the issue environment right now and whether or not that's, you know, President Biden's fault can be debated, but the issue environment right now benefits Republicans. But, you know, it, it is a choice come November and, you know, and certainly in 2024, uh, it'll be a choice and not just weighing in whether you approve or disapprove of how things are going. Presidents have to bear that in their approval rating, but ultimately is a choice. Okay, I want to bring Carl back into the conversation. Carl, welcome back. Uh, what has struck you um, about our conversation so far? Well, a couple of things, A.B. Um, you asked me about the, the, uh, the lowering of support among minorities for the Democrats since Joe, since Joe Biden's been president, specifically Biden's job approval rating. Well, you know, that re the gender gap is also a race gap. And I think in something like 16, the last 18 presidential elections, this off the top of my head, but the white women have supported the Republican nominee. So if the Democrats are losing uh, Hispanics and African-American voters, that's worrisome to them. That could be significant. Um, the other thing I would say, I very much agree with Nancy that... Um, 
this highly motivated cohort of voters, uh, women over 50, will continue to be highly motivated and, and will vote. And Christine explained why. I mean, you know, this ARP data, so you've got focus groups and polling done by a Republican pollster and a, and a Democratic pollster together, and they're finding, and, and what they find is that these women are very worried, uh, not just about inflation, but that they live in a country where the economy is not working for them. It, it not, it's just not working, uh, and, and there's no way out for them. Uh, they feel unheard and they feel trapped. And uh, over women over 50 are one third of them, are, according to this data, are ticket splitters. That's high. That's higher than the, the norm. That means these are the most discerning voters. And they're going to decide uh, between these two maiden narratives. The, the Democrats are saying, the Republicans are saying, yeah, this economy doesn't work for you. But it did work for you in the previous administration. It worked great. And this group has screwed it up. And the, and the Democratic response to that, uh, among the other things uh, that, that uh, Margie said, among other things, they're saying, wait a minute, are you kidding me? This guy lost an election. He lost an election because he lost with you, women voters, and he wouldn't even abide by the results. He launched a coup to try and stay in the White House. So in a sense, these two parties are talking past each other. And it seems to me, whichever narrative uh, sticks uh, with women voters over 50 is probably the way the wind will blow. Margie, what do you think about that? The volatility of, of the, the political landscape uh, and, and the idea of a referendum, but on, on the party in power when inflation is, it, it, worst inflation in 40 years, the most dominant issue, is there seems to be still movement for them to vote democratic that that they're not they're not sold by the policies republicans are selling in this environment to counter inflation otherwise we would see that they wouldn't be so many numbers of undecided and also can you address the ticket splitting aspect these discerning voters seem to be open to changing parties changing their minds splitting tickets. What do you find about their attitudes towards politics and whether or not they, they're committed to a team? Yeah. So, uh, you know, and I, I leave Christine to talk about ticket splitting, but I, I would say that it doesn't serve any candidate for office well to be thinking about, well, the environment is X. And so, you know, it's all, it's all wrapped up now, but I just need to make sure I'm, I'm, I show up in November. Um, people are open, women, older women, younger women, men, I mean, a variety of people are open to persuasion. They want to know what's happening. You know, there are still, you know, primaries that are, are the primaries and big battlegrounds states that haven't happened yet. Um, and people are learning about candidates who just won their primaries in really big states. There's lots of information coming out about key candidates in key states that is just beginning to, uh, you know, to get out there. So people are going to be trying to evaluate not just the political climate, but also what the Republican Party is offering in terms of policies on inflation, which, you know, to be honest, I haven't heard that much. And I think Democratic voters and swing voters are going to say something similar. So you know, if, um, you know, if Republican candidates are offering, you know, 
like stop the steal, own the libs kind of rhetoric, that's going to be a turnoff for a lot of people who are not already there. If you haven't made that journey, then are you going to now make that journey in the last couple of months before the election? Um, or is this going to be an election that's really about turnout and low turnout midterm election where it's really about making sure your team knows what the new rules may be in your state. And so those things, I think, remain to be seen. Um, but it's something that's going to be decided based on the atmosphere nationally, about what the Republican Party is offering, about what the Democratic Party is offering, and about what's happening with individual races. You know, have, you know, great candidates on the Democratic side who are able to connect to voters can run ahead of a tough environment. That's something that, you know, happens all the time. So, Christine, what I'm hearing is that in a political landscape this volatile and a, and a group of voters this upset but open-minded, it's a long way between now and November 8th. Definitely. And I do think that there is going to be, you know, voters are not as sort of basic as the teens say these days. You know, that's very basic. <laughs> They're not just basic. They're, I mean, having worked on Senate campaigns, you know, last cycle, and they were evaluating an incumbent, I mean— on national issues, but also in relation to her ability to bring things back to the state. And so, you know, I think Margie's got a point, which is if, if you go to a po the polls and you're very concerned about inflation, but you're convinced that, like, neither party can fix this, right now you're super mad because Democrats are in control. But, like, you get into that the voting booth and you're like, yeah, but, like, if Republicans are just going to, like— you know, impeach Biden or investigate Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, I don't know if that is like going to help me at all in terms of inflation. So we don't know right now if their mindset is going to be, well, let's let's just give Republicans a try because the Democrats certainly aren't doing a good job, right? That very well could be the mindset. Or it could be, I, I don't think either one. So I'm going to go to my next tier, which is you know, crime or immigration or division in the country or voting rights. I think there also has the potential to see some ticket splitting. So the abortion issue is likely going to be very highly variable at the state level. So in a yeah. state like Georgia, you know, you may vote one way for governor and another way, at the, you know, for senator Congress. Um, but I do think the abortion issue is going to have a bigger uh, impact in governor's races. And, and therefore, we may see some ticket splitting. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. That wraps up our program for today. I want to thank our guests, Margie Omero, Christine Matthews, Nancy Lamond, and Carl Cannon. And I want to thank AARP for their support of today's program. You can find out more about today's topic as well as see the full results of the AARP study at realclearpolitics.com slash women 50 plus voters. And thank you for watching. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm A.B. Stoddard. <laughs>